Welcome to the 52nd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertperlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the United States is seeing a rise in the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. This trend reflects Delta, not the new Omicron variant that has rampaged South Africa and spreading around the globe. In total deaths, the United States in 2021 surpassed the total for 2020, and that's according to the data from Johns Hopkins. And the highest mortality is defined by deaths per 100,000, That's happened in blue states and in red states, places like New York, New Jersey, North Dakota, Mississippi, and Florida. At the same time, however, the lowest mortality for any state is also the one with the highest vaccination rate, and that's Vermont. The lessons from the data are that vaccinations save lives, but that it's also safe for living in geographies that are less dense, particularly when you're able to spend more time outside. As in the past, older age individuals have the highest mortality, but we're seeing a shift to a younger population having an increased chance of dying this year than last, probably reflecting the difference in rates of vaccination between the two demographics. Of course, the biggest story this week, Omicron. This new variant was initially thought to have begun in an immune compromised individual, and that theory with a prolonged disease and someone who can't fight the virus could explain the huge number of mutations. There's 50 at least overall with 30 of them on the spike protein. And it's the magnitude and the number of mutations that likely has made this variant more transmissible and led to the fear that the strain could be relatively vaccine resistant. Omicron has been identified in dozens of countries around the world, and it's even possible that the earliest cases may actually have come from one of these European countries rather than South Africa, with an entirely different origin than some have hypothesized. The first case in the U.S. was identified in California. This individual had been to South Africa, but the second one was an individual from Minnesota who had flown to New York City, but never outside the country. And he attended, along with 46,000 others, the anime convention, the Javis Center, November 19th to 21st. Since then, multiple additional individuals who were at the conference in New York City have also come down with the infection. It's clear the virus is racing ahead 
of our ability to contain it. Fortunately, so far, everyone infected has been vaccinated. And in each of the cases, these illnesses were mild. There's still so much more that we need to learn. Ravi, I know that Omicron will be on the minds of listeners. Can you unpack the issues relative to this strain for listeners, at least based on what we know today? Let's discuss three factors. Transmissibility, vaccine immunity evasion, and lethality. All will be essential to understand, and it's too early to be sure what's happening with each. Let's begin with transmissibility. If under similar circumstances, the average person with COVID-19 transmits the virus to three others, that's what we saw with the first strain, versus the average person infected with a mutant strain transmitting it to five, as we see with Delta, then that makes the second one more transmissible. And under these circumstances, the mathematics say the three patients infected with the first strain would give it to nine and nine would then give it to 27. That's sort of in general terms. In contrast, the five initial infections with the more transitional mutant would lead to 25 and then 125, many, many more cases than we saw with the initial virus. It's not hard, therefore, to understand why relatively quickly a mutant variant displaces what otherwise had been a dominant strain. And that's exactly what we saw with Delta. It now accounts for 99% of COVID infections in the US. In contrast, most of the variants since Delta, but before Omicron, have failed to displace the Delta variant because they have not been more transmissible. And this is what makes Omicron so worrisome since it has so rapidly displaced Delta in South Africa. At the same time, South Africa is different than Europe and different than the US. There's plenty of vaccine in South Africa, but only 25% of the population has availed itself of it. As such, we don't yet know the relative transmissibility of the two strains in vaccinated versus unvaccinated individuals. So until researchers see what is happening in these highly vaccinated nations, ones including the US, we can't be certain of the risk this variant will pose specific to transmissibility. And that leads to the second issue of vaccine antibody evasion. Remember that where the antibodies attach and do their work is on the spike protein. And the antibody and the spike protein, they're like a lock and key. Alter the protein and the key won't fit. But of course, we know that the current vaccines lead to the production of many different antibodies against multiple proteins. And as a result, there's no way to be sure how much of the immunity will remain despite the alterations in some of the spike proteins. We may find the protection to be relatively high, but it also could be significantly less. But regardless, vaccination and booster shots do increase the quantity of antibodies, and they do provide a far greater protection than exists in unvaccinated individuals. And that's why everyone is scrambling to encourage people currently age 18 and over to be vaccinated, but that minimum age is expected to drop to 16 as the FDA and CDC review. 
the current vaccine manufacturing requests and the clinical implications of the evolving Omicron variant. So far, scientists are confident that the vaccines will provide at least a moderate amount of protection, but they also fear it will be less than we saw against Delta. And if that's the case, it would mean more breakthrough infections. Now, figuring all this out isn't as straightforward as you might think. One way you might try to calculate is to take a population of, let's say, 10,000 people and compare the percentage of vaccinated versus unvaccinated people who become sick with the new variant. But doing that wouldn't be accurate unless the likelihood of getting tested in the two groups is the same, and that only will occur if the severity of the illness is equivalent between the vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And that leads to the third issue of lethality. As we've said on coronavirus, the truth many times, mutations are random events. These are changes that happen in the genetic material, in this case, the RNA, and they happen while the genetic material is being copied and a replication error just by chance happens. With hundreds of thousands of new cases a day worldwide, it does occur frequently. Most of these alterations, they don't make a difference. And the newly created virus that results never gets a foothold and goes on to disappear. But when the new sequence of nucleic acids confers a competitive advantage, then as we said earlier, the number of infected people rises exponentially displacing the dominant strain. There are two ways that the mutation can create the competitive advantage. The first is through higher transmissibility. If a viral mutation is more likely to spread to more individuals, then it becomes increasingly prevalent. But also, if it's able to circumvent the antibodies and other defense mechanisms generated either following vaccination or previous infection, then once again, it too can become more common in the population and become increasingly dominant. In contrast, the ability to make someone very sick or kill them, that doesn't create competitive advantage. In fact, viruses do better when people don't die. Since living individuals are the source of infection capable of passing it on to others. For these reasons, a more lethal mutation wouldn't, on its own, lead to a variant becoming dominant. But if by chance the mutation also increased the transmissibility, or it allowed the virus to evade immune defenses in people, that would be extremely problematic if that same mutation, by chance, was simply more deadly. Now remember, it takes a couple of weeks for most people who get exposed to come down with the infection, become sick enough to be hospitalized, and then a couple more weeks before they go on to die. And even in South Africa, we're not yet at that point. What researchers, policy experts, and public health officials want to know is whether this variant makes vaccinated individuals and people who've recovered from prior infections sicker than Delta does. And so far, we're barely out of the starting gate and having enough people to study, particularly in high vaccination countries, but at least so far, the data says that it doesn't. And in fact, there's some preliminary data that says possibly 
There's a reduced lethality in this new variant strain. Jerry, when I put the pieces together, what I see, given how fast the variant has spread in South Africa, is that it's likely to be more transmissible. And given how many mutations exist, and each alters the protein on, on the spike protein, it's possible that there'll be reduced immunity. But if the data on lethality holds up, that would be great news. In a few weeks, we'll know a lot more and update listeners as the research becomes available. Robbie, it sounds as though vaccination and boosters are the best line of defense, even if they're not as strong when it comes to Omicron as they were relative to Delta. Uh, where does the percentage of people vaccinated currently stand? Unfortunately, vaccines in general and mandates in particular remain political and contentious. As we saw in South Africa, there were 30 million doses available, but only 19 million used. The U.S. also has an adequate supply to protect everyone, but the number of vaccinated people is relatively stalled out, both the first shots, with approximately 70% of Americans having received one, and for full vaccination, with only 60% of people reaching that status, according to the CDC. And that is why new infections, hospitalizations, and death in the United States remain unacceptably high even in the context of Delta, not yet Omicron. The good news is that the vaccine manufacturers believe they could create a vaccine specific to this variant if it's necessary in as little as six weeks, with probably a few months needed for the FDA to test or to be sure that the testing is adequate and complete and provide authorization. And already the FDA is looking how it could safely accomplish this. Despite the ongoing infections and huge number of individuals severely ill, vaccine mandates are running up against stiff resistance. We mentioned in the last show, some of the opposition has come from unions, but it's also come politically. Two states with Republican governors, Montana and Tennessee have banned vaccine mandates. And seven states, Texas, Iowa, West Virginia, Florida, Alabama, and Arkansas, have passed legislation requiring opt-outs for workers if the Biden administration mandates for employers of 100 or more workers becomes law. What we've seen are that mandates work. As an example, close to 95% of federal employees have received at least one shot since that requirement was put in place, and the majority are now fully vaccinated. But despite attempts by the governmental officials to get a reversal of the federal court appeals, there's been a temporary stoppage of the mandate, and that roadblock appears to be coming even taller. Missouri federal court recently blocked the mandate for healthcare workers in federally funded facilities from being enforced in 10 states. Missouri, Nebraska, Arkansas, Kansas, Iowa, Wyoming, Alaska, South Dakota, North Dakota, and New Hampshire. In these areas, the mandate, the court said, requires congressional passage rather than simply CMS, which is the Senators for Medicare and Medicaid action. And the expectation is that this prohibition would become nationwide. 
I venture a strong argument made in court by those opposing the mandate was that it would negatively impact patient health since it would exacerbate the current staffing shortages if people retired rather than taking the vaccine. And as such, the court ruled that the federal imposition would be improper. That still leaves open the opportunity for these types of mandates to be imposed by businesses for exactly the same reason. In recognition of the fact that the COVID-19 outbreak would have a deleterious impact on their current workforce, employers could argue that putting in place the mandate would actually protect patients for the same reason that the courts overturned the federal imposition of the mandate. And we're seeing that momentum building at the employer level with more businesses putting in place this requirement than ever before. An Axios survey of 543 employers with 100 or more employees found that 57% of them currently do or plan to require vaccination. 25% employers say that if the federal mandate goes into place, those workers who opt for weekly testing in place of vaccination, something that is allowed for some of the job descriptions, they would have to pay for the testing unless prohibited under state or federal law. It's likely that if Omicron proves to be as problematic as some fear, that employer vaccine mandates will become even more common in the near future than they are today. Robbie, we know that there has been a disproportionate share of deaths among Black patients. What about the economic impact of COVID-19 on minority communities? Jeremy, this pandemic has been devastating for people of color in so many ways, including excess numbers of deaths, greater educational hardships, and more severe economic costs. As an example, the share of U.S. adults who lost pay or income as a result of the pandemic that number has been 18% for Latino workers, 16% for black workers, and only 10% for white workers. And when tracked on a monthly basis, what we've seen is that these massive spikes in income inequality happening. This is according to Axios's inequality index. Every time the virus flares, it happened in the first part of 2021, it's happening again today. According to the survey, minority groups are more likely than whites to lack the savings required to cover basic expenses, and they're more likely to experience reduced income. And it's during these turndowns that Black and Latino workers are more likely to fear losing their jobs, and it's the same group of minority workers that report having inadequate savings to cover even a month's worth of expenses. Jeremy, let me ask you, let's say that the researchers identified that the Omicron variant was twice as transmissible and twice as lethal for people who weren't vaccinated than what exists today. Would that be enough to rally the country behind a vaccine mandate for the United States? Or what if kids started dying as a result of this new COVID variant as they do with the flu. Would any of these draconian circumstances overcome the political divide? And if not, Jeremy, what will it take? Ravi, 
I think the only thing that would make people get behind a mandate is if a strain that was significantly deadlier comes along. At this point, I believe the lines have been drawn, people have made up their minds, and the only thing that will change it is if the virus becomes much more deadly for both children and adults. Robbie, in a previous show, we talked about the Merck pill that you soon start after becoming symptomatic with COVID-19. What's new? Jeremy, as you say, the Merck pill has, was submitted to the FDA, and the original estimate that was reported in the press release was that by taking these eight pills a day for five days, that there'd be a 50% reduction in severe illness in people with one or more risk factors like obesity and heart disease. What the final data showed is that the protection was dramatically less, estimated to be around 30% as measured by hospitalizations or death. The FDA, as it usually does, asked this panel of experts to weigh in on this drug prior to final authorization. In particular, the FDA wanted the committee to look at the degree of protection against the risks from the medication. The final result, the final vote was positive. The margin was very narrow at 13 to 10. The lack of enthusiasm reflected, first, the low effectiveness of the pill. Second, the broad authorization requested by the company. Many committee members wanted the authorization to exclude women who are pregnant or women trying to become pregnant or children. And the reason for this concern is that the drug works by interfering with a particular enzyme that the virus uses to duplicate the genetic material. And this could negatively impact a fetus or growing child if it affected the human DNA as well, something that has not yet been shown, but is theoretically possible. And given the risks and limited efficacy, the committee members felt that the medication should only be prescribed for patients at a high risk of a complication. Pfizer, another drug company, will be seeking authorization for its pill in the near future. And in this case, what the company has said is that it's 89% effective. But as with Merck, the only data released so far has been through press releases, not scientific publications. So we'll just have to see what the final numbers look like. Although the availability of oral medications like these is promising, there is growing concern that there may not be sufficient testing available to identify who is sick early enough in the process to make a clinical difference. As you said, the drug needs to be started quickly, usually within five days of initial symptoms. Listeners need to understand this medication isn't an alternative to vaccination. It's likely to be better than nothing similar to many other treatments for patients with COVID-19, but nowhere near the 90% efficacy levels of the vaccine. And the rapid tests, they're not 100% effective, particularly early in the infection process when the viral loads are low. This is a small step forward, but not the massive leap that many people had hoped for or thought that it would be. Robbie. A listener appreciated our discussion in a previous episode of what an endemic COVID-19 might look like. How does Omicron uh, impact that scenario? Jeremy, our listeners are incredibly smart, and I always appreciate their questions. As we said earlier, we don't have the answers that we'll need about this variant, 
But here are a few of the possibilities. First, just as Delta raised the difficulty of achieving herd immunity from 70% of the population to over 90% due to its higher rate of transmission, a more transmissible Omicron strain would push that even higher. And assuming that 30% or so of the population that has resisted vaccination persists in their hesitancy, it would mean that we've only reached a small way towards the endemic state. We'll need to see a lot more of the unvaccinated become infected, and that's problematic. Let's assume there's 60 million individuals and the mortality from Omicron is similar to the current coronaviruses, which is a 1% mortality rate. That would mean an additional half million more deaths. And then there's the possibility that the strain will be able to evade antibodies produced by the current vaccines. And that would allow the virus to continue to percolate even after vaccination or disease. And once again, the preliminary data shows that there may be a relatively low level of protection after prior COVID-19 infection against the strain. Putting it together, it's gonna to be hard to achieve an endemic COVID-19 and made harder by Omicron compared to previous strains. In this context, I published a Forbes article last week calling an endemic COVID-19 a cause for celebration. But to get there, far more people will need to be vaccinated. But if we could do that, there would be far fewer deaths than waiting for people to come down with the disease and develop immunity, hopefully having recovered. The current threats posed by Omicron of continuous school closures with compromised remote learning, major increases in people's psychological difficulties, challenges for business, and the current 1,000 deaths a day, if we can get past all of that, I think that's a triumph. And reaching an endemic COVID-19 state would allow us to do that. In the article, I pointed out that way back in March of 2020, we were hopeful this virus would be just similar to the flu and its risk to people. And that is what an endemic COVID-19 would look like. But we can't reach that target until at least 90% of people have immunity. Getting there by losing half a million people to infection, rather than maybe at most 50,000 following vaccination would be an unacceptable price to pay, in my opinion. And it could be worse, since based upon the early exposure in South Africa, if the immunity generated from prior infection is relatively low, we could see us having that number of deaths, but still having the destination of an endemic COVID-19, a distant hope. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, the only good news that I can find specific to the coronavirus is the confidence that vaccine manufacturers have in their ability to rapidly create a vaccine targeted at Omicron. As we said earlier, they've already begun that process of getting there so that we can be hopeful that should we see a big spike in infections and, and deaths, that we will have a solution 
at least for those who are vaccinated. So maybe this week we should just call this segment the lighter news part of the podcast. And in that vein, let's talk about testing for entrance to Thanksgiving dinners, holiday parties, and even weddings. Let's call it a new social norm. In the past, some holiday hosts and bridal parties asked the guests to be tested within the past 48 to 72 hours. And what we're seeing now is that increasingly, before people can hang up their coats and pick up their seating assignments, they're being ushered into a separate room where they're swabbed for a rapid COVID-19 test on site. And unfortunately, that means that quite a number of guests will have been turned away, disappointed that they had not received the vaccine. And that process is likely to accelerate across this month and into 2022, particularly in the context of Omicron. It's clear that social mores have changed and we're unlikely to return to the old normal in the year to come. Proving vaccination status is becoming a norm. Booster shots are likely to become a new standard and testing a more common expectation and on-site testing a very frequent site. And in a lighter vein as well, we can remember last year when Merriam-Webster made pandemic the word of the year for 2021. This year's word is vaccine. The selection is based on lookup volume on their website with vaccine searches having gone up 600% this year. The editor-in-chief of Merriam-Webster, however, noted that not all of those searches were driven by medical curiosity or desire to find a site to obtain that vaccination. He pointed out that for many people, the increase in interest happened in the context of the ongoing, quote, debate about personal choice, political affiliation, professional regulations, school safety, healthcare inequity, and so much more. And he added, in quotes, few words can express so much about one moment in time. As a physician, I fear that he is right. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that enjoy our efforts to expand material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's this week's big healthcare story? Jeremy, although this segment is designed to focus on other areas of healthcare besides COVID-19, this week was so overflowing with coronavirus news that I can't find a different topic of equal significance. In particular, I was struck by the president's plan to control the current pandemic in the context of Omicron. Remembering that none of this is laws yet, he planned to double down on encouraging people to become vaccinated and to get a booster shot. Neither of these was surprising. But he also said that he'd pushed to make at-home COVID testing fully reimbursable by insurance companies and would require all people coming to the US to be tested within 24 hours of travel, whereas in the past it had been 72. Throughout this pandemic, I've tried to separate those actions that will make a difference and those that seem symbolic. Vaccinations and boosters both have solid scientific evidence. At-home testing can help, but only if the person that takes the test then isolates him or herself 
when they turn positive and notifies everyone that he or she has come in contact with over the previous five days. And similarly, the travel restrictions make sense relative to the risk of someone on the plane spreading the virus to the other passengers. But it's medically counterintuitive to do this for people coming from places like Italy, where the infection rate is one-fifth of the U.S., and not to do so for everyone coming into New York or leaving New York for another place somewhere in the United States. Across the country, only 59.4% of Americans are fully vaccinated. This is a mere 1.4% increase from the month before. At this rate, it'll be almost three years before we convert COVID-19 to an endemic rather than a pandemic. With the courts ruling against federal mandates for both businesses with more than 100 employees and all healthcare workers, the president is stuck. The job of the chief executive is to use the power of the office to do what is difficult. The same is true relative to the president's ability to evolve and transform healthcare delivery and financing. You know, Jeremy, presidents often get credited when things go well, even when there was little that they did to make it happen. But it's also true that they get blamed for difficulties beyond their control. And Omicron is a great example. Jeremy, listeners loved your answer on the last episode about your initial skepticism about telemedicine and your current embrace of this approach. Let me ask you about a different technology, and that's the electronic health care record. How concerned are you that if all your medical information, including your vaccination status, were stored in the cloud in one location, that people might hack into it without your approval? Robbie, I have some friends that are cybersecurity experts who know much more about this subject than I do. Uh, what they tell me is that health data gets hacked much, much more than people realize. And oftentimes healthcare organizations get hacked with ransomware and they pay that ransomware or that ransom quietly as opposed to reporting it like they should. They don't want the bad press and they don't want to lose customers over the scandal. I've been told that the amount of hacked medical records already available for sale on the dark web is mind-blowing. Um, I would say I'm very concerned about all of my records being stored in one location unless I was fully confident in the encryption. Uh, that being said, I have heard that the way to really make this as safe as possible is via the blockchain. Honestly, though, I do not see EHRs opening up and letting this data uh, be easily shared with health systems that could be using other EHRs. Uh, my main concern about all of this is, is less for myself. I don't really feel like I have any health data that's that incriminating, but I worry about for example, what if someone has HIV or some other health condition that they don't want coworkers or other people to find out about? Or perhaps someone was struggling with substance abuse or a mental health issue. And what if they got blackmailed with this information as leverage? That's what I find truly scary. Robbie, quite a number of countries have closed their borders to people arriving from other nations. The United States has limited restrictions to individuals from South Africa and adjacent countries. I've heard conflicting opinions. Some people say that we're being too permissive and others that border closures make no sense. Uh, what do you think? Jeremy, throughout this pandemic, we've tried in Coronavirus the Truth to identify the principles underlying a national decision rather than just offering our own opinion about how we feel about it. Frequently, what we've discovered is that there's a deeper question that must be resolved first. And that's the situation here. 
The idea that closing borders will prevent the virus from entering a country, that's false. Usually by the time you recognize that there's a danger, the virus has already come ashore. As we said earlier in the show, that's true for Omicron. It's in the United States. So if that's the case, why do nations close borders? The answer is twofold and both reasons reflect reducing the prevalence of the virus. Now let's go back to the math. Delta spreads from one person to five. So let's say Omicron is more transmissible and it spreads from one person to seven. If you're a small country, maybe an island like New Zealand, what you wanna do is keep everyone out and find the few people inside the country already infected, you quarantine them, and in this way, you can eliminate the virus before it spreads. If you're a bigger country like China or South Korea, here you can't eliminate the virus, but you can closely monitor your people electronically. And with a culture that accepts personal sacrifice for the greater good, that allows you to minimize the spread and keep the number of new cases, hospitalizations, and death very low. But if you like the US, neither of these strategies will work. Our population is too large to eliminate the virus. And as a nation, we're too wedded to individual freedom to effectively control it. But there's a third reason why closing borders can be helpful, and that is to buy time. Let's assume there's a relatively small number of people currently infected in the US. Leave the borders open to air traffic, particularly leave them open to countries with large numbers of infections. And what you can see is a doubling of the number of cases. And it's that initial difference that over time would ultimately account for 100,000 infections rather than 50,000 or 200,000 infections rather than 100,000. Later in the spread, the influx of the same number of infected people, that would have a much smaller impact. And that initial difference would ultimately be the difference between 50,000 and 100,000 infections or 100,000 and 200,000 infections. Bring that number of people into the country later in the pandemic when there's a large number of cases and the consequence is very small. But with a virus that spreads exponentially, the number of cases at the beginning has a massive impact across many replications later in the pandemic. If we had a doubling now, we will see a doubling later. By the time we double multiple times, that exact same number of individuals arriving here from elsewhere in the globe would have a small, a relatively inconsequential increase in total number of cases. Ultimately, as we said, the infection will spread until there's enough immunity from vaccination or prior infection. So if eliminating the virus and controlling its numbers is not the long-term strategy, why is President Biden doing it? The reason is that it buys a few weeks, maybe a month or two, until we see the number of cases and deaths spike. And that time allows for a major increase in the number of people who receive the initial vaccinations and booster shots. But of course, if we don't drive vaccination up, that delay will make little or no difference. 
and the effort will have been in vain. The real question is going to be, what's President Biden's longer-term strategy? We know that disease is growing across the European continent. And we know that with the relatively open borders of many nations, that the Omicron infection will spread. Having just reopened flights from Europe, however, the president will have to decide what to do when the number of cases invariably rise. If he doesn't ban the flights, he'll come under tremendous criticism from the Southern African nations who currently feel that the ban against them is discriminatory and they'll feel even more justified in their anger than they do already. If he decides he's gonna ban them, people are gonna wonder why didn't he do it early enough in the process. In the strategy course, Jeremy, that I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I point out strategy isn't about the next step, but the four following it. It's foolish in times of war to let your enemy know your plan and to come up with a counter strategy to circumvent it. But this isn't a traditional war. This virus is little more than a lipid shell surrounding a single piece of RNA. Yet this virus is relentless in finding ways to maximize transmission. Fighting viral spread requires agility and our country has yet to demonstrate that skill. We're two years into this pandemic and most likely we're about to see a third year with the virus taking hundreds of thousands of lives and constraining the lives of Americans. Hopefully this time will be different. And if so, closing our borders to one spoiled part of the world needs to be recognized as a tactic, a short-term tactic, but not a long-term solution. A pivot will be needed. And as we said earlier, the greatest threat will be viral spread with the Delta, Omicron, or the next Greek letter by people inside the US to others, particularly unvaccinated individuals in whom they come in contact. I'm hopeful at this time, the president has a solid long-term plan with the next set of maneuvers and requisite contingencies laid out and ready to go. Time will tell. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. Uh, to submit a question or comments to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.